Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Pastor Allen. We're so glad that you've chosen to join us, either live or later in the day or in the week. We're in a new series we started last week called You're Not Far. Do you feel far from God today? Hopefully not. Um, does he feel far, seem far away from you? Uh, he's not. Today's topic is disturbing. We'll explain what we mean by disturbing. It was disturbing Jesus' message to his audience uh, 2,000 years ago. So we started this study of the life of Jesus, not any Jesus, but a Jesus of Nazareth 2,000 years ago. And so that's the Jesus that actually we have four historical accounts of his life, and we've chosen to pick one. And the account we've picked is the account of one of his disciples by the name of Simon Peter, maybe his most famous disciple. And at this point, uh, he's probably not educated enough to to write his own account, so he's most likely dictating it. He's in prison in Rome, and he's probably in his mid-50s, and uh, he probably dies by the year 65 A.D., because that's when Nero dies, and Nero was uh, emperor when he was uh, executed. History teaches us. So he's dictating it, and we believe that the author is, or the one that writes it, is John Mark. And so we call this the Gospel of Mark. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But Mark's account is actually Peter's experience. So I put that on, on your outline. Um, what Mark was writing was not what we call the Bible. It's included in the Bible when he was writing it. In fact, the Bible didn't exist for 300 years. So what he was writing, he, all he's doing is writing an eyewitness account of Peter who was a close disciple of Jesus. So Jesus was spending these years with... Peter was spending these years with Jesus and reciting it probably at times, different times, but at least the last two years of his life, Mark was his, basically his sidekick. So he's recording this, writing it all down. History tells us that Mark took this document to Alexandria, Egypt. They made copies of it and began to distribute it to the church. And so eventually, like I said, 300 years ago, later, along with the other gospel stories and Paul's writings and some of Peter's writings and other people's writings, plus the Old Testament was included in what we call the Bible today. But as we read it, let's think of it not as Bible, uh, feel it, think of it as God's Word, but as Peter's experiences with Jesus. So, quick review here at the beginning, if you weren't with us last week. He starts off with the dessert first. Life is short, eat dessert first. He says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. He didn't talk about Jesus' parents and all that kind of stuff. Gets right to the, to the dessert, if you will. Peter had been a Jesus follower for 30 years at this point, and he was still convinced, as he was 30 years earlier, that this Jesus of Nazareth was the Son of God, the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah. Now, I asked you last week, what, what is the bottom line of Christianity to us today? And I left a part out, so I'm going to try and go through it again real quickly. We believe this Jesus of Nazareth came to earth. He was born of a, born of a virgin, so he wasn't stained by sin. He lived a perfect life. Uh, he was executed, tortured and executed. Came back to life three days later. Consequently, he conquered sin and death because he hadn't sinned. He didn't deserve to die, so he could die 
in our place, your place and my place. And so if I believe in Him, repent of my sins, accept His gift of salvation, I have a renewed relationship with God here on earth now and I spend eterni- will spend eternity with Him. So that's kind of our bottom line of Christianity. But So what was Jesus' bottom line? Because He couldn't be death and resurrection because it hadn't happened yet. So Mark tells us, really fascinating, in verse 15 he says, the time promised by God has come at last. So the wait is over. Over a thousand years they've been predicting the Messiah coming. The wait's over. The kingdom of God is near. Now they thought it was going to be an earthly kingdom. He said, no, it's a kingdom of the heart and mind. It's a spiritual kingdom, an eternal kingdom. But it's near. It's not far. And you're not far from the kingdom. Repent, the, the response to it should be to repent. That means to turn around. So turn away from your sins and turn to this good news and believe it. Believe the good news. So that was Jesus' message. That was his bottom line. And we said last week, he went with the companions into the town of Capernaum. On the Sabbath day he came, uh, verses 21 and 22. Uh, he went into the synagogue and began to, pre- to teach. And that's what he taught. The people were amazed at his teaching and he taught with real authority, quite unlike teachers of religious law. They never heard anything like this. <clears throat> I kind of thought about it this way. I could be telling your story about something. I knew your story and I was telling it. That's a whole different thing than me telling my own story. And so Jesus is telling his own story. So it was with a special uh, realness or special authority. And then a few verses later, it said, the news about Jesus spread quickly. Good news spreads quickly. It spread throughout the entire region of Galilee. And we'll show you a map in a few minutes. <clears throat> One word that shows up quite a bit in the Gospel of, <clears throat> of Mark is the word crowd. Crowd, crowd, crowd. And we'll see that as we look at some of the text this morning. Now, Jesus came with a new perspective, a new worldview, a new way of thinking. And so consequently, um, it was disturbing to people, just as new ways of thinking are to us today. And this new way of thinking was to remove some of the obstacles that make people feel far from God or God far from them. And so that's why we say, you're not far, because Jesus removed some of those obstacles. Now, I'm going to give you the three three of them this morning, uh, and then we'll go back and look at the, the narratives that support these three disturbing <laughs> practices of Jesus. Now, the first one was, Jesus would ignore certain, not all, but certain religious practices. And maybe one re- struggle you have with Christianity is some of these, you might call weird things that, <laughs> that churches do uh, in the name of Jesus. So Jesus is going to address at least one of those in the text this morning. And you'll see others. He's going to do stuff on the Sabbath that they didn't think was allowable, etc. <clears throat> so this was disturbing to Jewish people. That was the religion that, of Jesus, Judaism. So that was one of the disturbing narratives we'll look at. The second was, this is really disturbing, Jesus claimed he had the power to forgive sin. Now, you may f- struggle with the idea that you can be forgiven, but Jesus said, I can forgive sin. And we'll look at that, at that in that narrative. And the third disturbing thing that 
practice of Jesus was he was uncomfortably comfortable with unrepentant sinners. People that were far from God. Uh, and most people in that situation feel like, you know, I've got to clean my act up. I've got to be a better person before I can even think about joining this Christianity or hanging out with these people that seem so much better than I am or whatever. <clears throat> the problem is, though, the church start, started out like Jesus, but within, say, 300 years, about the time the Bible was put together, the church kind of stepped back and brought these practices back into Christianity. And that's one reason we want to talk about it, because they shouldn't be um, obstacles or barrier to anybody coming, coming to Christ. So let's look at the first one. <clears throat> Jesus would ignore certain religious practices. So we're going to pick the story up in Mark chapter 1, verse 39. So he, Jesus, traveled throughout the region of Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons, just as we read about last week. So let me show you the map. And some people saying they couldn't, couldn't make out the different parts. So I'll just give you kind of an overview. The nation of Israel in Jesus' day was divided in three parts. Judea at the bottom. That blue part is Samaria, where uh, the Jews didn't want to go. <laughs> and uh, Galilee is up at the top, uh, that yellow part. And that's where Jesus is spend a lot of his time. That's where Jesus was from. Nazareth is in that area. Mediterranean Sea on one side, the Jordan River on the other side. Sea of Galilee at the top of the Jordan River, Dead Sea at the bottom. Jerusalem's down in this bottom part. It's about 90 miles in between. Uh, Jesus was baptized down here at the bottom of the Jordan River. And so he had to travel, say, 90 miles back up to his home country after he was baptized and started his ministry. So, he's in Galilee, an area up at the top, 90 miles from Jerusalem. A man with leprosy came and knelt in front of Jesus. Now, you need to understand a couple things. One, any skin disease was considered leprosy in the Old Testament because they couldn't tell the difference. Now, literally, leprosy was fatal. It was also contagious. So, they practiced social distancing 2,000 years ago because you didn't get near enough to touch a leper. A leper wasn't allowed to get close enough to touch you. And so they consequently lived by themselves. You were segregated from your family and loved ones, etc. You know, if you were married, you couldn't be with your spouse. If you had kids, you couldn't be with your kids. You were set in this kind of limbo between life and death and because you had a death sentence and you couldn't associate with, in regular society. Obviously, no one would touch you. And this is one of the weird things about church these days. We don't even shake hands. We don't hug. Uh, touch is part of a, a human need we have. Well, a leper got, got none of that. Now, it's pretty disturbing, just this part of the story, because we don't know how close to Jesus he was, but it sounds like he's pretty close to Jesus. He knelt in front of Jesus. That was probably off limits in his time. And what did he do? He begging to be healed. Fatal disease, right? Jesus, is it possible? Can you do anything to heal me? Now notice this, and this is really a, a, a great statement of faith. <clears throat> if you, Jesus, are willing, you can heal me and make me clean. They associated healing with being clean or vice versa. Unclean, not being healed. 
willing, you can do this. So I'm going to give you a definition of faith from this, from this leper. Confident Jesus can, hopeful he will. And I think that's a really good definition of faith. Because when we pray for somebody, somebody that's sick, I'm confident that person can be healed. Um, do I know if they're going to be healed? No, I do not know. Now, some churches would teach that you can know. Well, no, you can't know. <laughs> Only Jesus knows. Uh, but we believe, faith is believing Jesus can. He can heal someone. He can, you know, change situations, etc. But we don't know if he will. That's faith. It's presumption that, to think you know that he will. So this was the faith that this leper expressed to Jesus. I know you can heal me, Jesus, and I just hope you will. So the next verse is a little pl- problematic. Uh, translators are a little confused by this one word. Move with compassion. Some translations put compassion. Some translations put pity. Uh, um, but then other translations put words like indignant and angry. So I'm trying to rationalize or understand what, that, what would Jesus be angry about. <clears throat> and I think it's because of, of sin and sickness and what it does to us. Uh, but the result is, it, it appears he's going to show compassion to this, uh, to this man. <clears throat> now, Peter's re- reciting this, and if I'm Peter, I'm thinking, back at the, that day, Jesus, don't touch him. Better not touch him. If you touch him, we're in trouble. Uh, there's going to be this whole ritual we're going to have to go through. You're going to have to go all the way to, to the temple and... You go before the priest for seven days and make sure you're, so you're clean. Plus, you possibly could get this fatal disease. What does Jesus do? He reached out and touched him. Um, we can't comprehend how radical this was. So against the norm, so against the rules. He completely ignored the instructions of the Old Testament in Leviticus. I just read that. All these instructions about when you're dealing with somebody with leprosy. So, text goes on. What happens? Jesus said, I am willing. Well, if you're willing, I'm going to get healed because I know you can heal. That's my faith. So he said, be healed. So what happened? Instantly, not seven days that the priest had to look at you, instantly the leprosy disappeared and the man was healed. Amazing. Then Jesus sent him on his way with a stern warning. I don't understand why he gave him this warning. It's kind of like when you tell your kids not to do something, what are they going to do? They're going to do what you tell them not to do, right? That's exactly what happens to this guy. But he tells him not to tell anybody about this. But he gives him instructions of something he wants him to do. He says, instead, go to the priest, let him examine you. This is instructions in Leviticus. Old Testament, their Bible. Take along the offering required in the law of Moses. Again, that's their Bible. For those who have been healed of leprosy. Now again, leprosy was incurable, but there's some form of skin diseases that were. This will be a public testimony that you've been cleansed. The only way he can re-enter society, only reason he can go back home is if he gets cleared by the priest, even though it seemed obvious that he was healed. Jesus proclaimed he was. So what's the man do? Man went and spread the word, proclaiming to everyone what had happened. 
I mean, if you get healed of incurable disease, you're going to tell people about it. You're going to shout it from the rooftops. And that's exactly what he did. Now, we assume he went and did what Jesus told him to do because, obviously, you'd want to rejoin society. But did Jesus go? Remember, he touched him. Did Jesus go to the temple and see the priests and wait seven days to be declared clean? He completely ignored that religious tradition. Now, it's a little confusing to us. Why would he send this man to do it? I think it's so he could rejoin society. Um, why didn't Jesus do it? Because it wasn't necessary. Like some other spiritual <laughs> or religious activities aren't necessary. So Jesus is in this transition time from the old way to the new way. From the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, to the New Testament... Um, so he had the one guy follow the old covenant he himself ignored it again we don't understand how disturbing this would have been to his audience what was the result though evidently they ignored the fact that he touched the leper because large crowds soon surrounded Jesus he couldn't publicly enter a town anywhere it got so crazy that he had to stay out in the, out in the countryside but people from everywhere kept coming to him anyway. Uh, so his popularity was growing. But he, in this case, ignored this instruction of not touching a leper, and then if he did, being exposed, having to go to the temple. He ignored it. Very disturbing. Second thing that was disturbing, Jesus claimed to have the power to forgive sin. I mean, this is huge. <clears throat> So, after a while in the country, you need to go to town to get supplies or whatever. You just need to go sometime. So, eventually, he returns to the city. So, the text reads this way. When Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly. He was back home, back in town. He couldn't keep this a secret. Again, I'll put the map up. Capernaum's on the Sea of Galilee. Um, sea of Galilee is not very big. I could think about it. I could probably walk or run around it in one day. So it's not really big. But up there in kind of the north, would be northwest corner, is Capernaum. So that's where Jesus is. This was a center of commerce. It wasn't a big place, but it still was a center of commerce. And it also housed the headquarters of Roman soldiers. So it's a pretty important town. So the text goes on. Soon the house where he was staying, so he was in a house, was so packed with visitors that there was no more room even outside the doors. Now, houses back then were really small. The roofs were really low. The roofs were flat. And you usually had a stair so you could use the, the roof as part of a living space. You would use it. And so Jesus there in this cramped little house with the crowds outside, inside and outside. And he's preaching. What was he preaching? Again, what? What was his message, his bottom line? Let's read it again. The time promised by God has come at last. The wait is over. The kingdom of God is near. Not an earthly kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom. Kingdom of the heart and conscience. Response is to repent, turn from your sins, and believe the good news. Believe this message. So, that's what he's preaching. House is crowded. Some men show up. Actually, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man. So we had a, a leper, now we've got a paralyzed man on a mat. 
They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd. There's that word crowd. They always crowd around Jesus. They wanted to get to Jesus, especially inside a house. You couldn't get there. So they took the guy home, right? No, no, they didn't let this stop him. But it made me think about when you and I see needs. Evidently, these four men saw a need, this paralyzed man, to get him to Jesus. And they not only did what was kind of natural, but they did something above and beyond to try and get them help. Um, just prayed for the people in Texas. Maybe there's something you and I need to do to help those people. Not just pray for them. Praying for them is great. But there's something literally we can do for them. So, they go up on this roof. They begin to dig a hole. The roof is probably made out of mud and straw, so you could dig through it. They dug a hole through the roof above Jesus' head. So, it's just mind-boggling the picture. Can you picture this? Jesus is there teaching. There's people everywhere. And all of a sudden, the, the ceiling starts to deteriorate. <laughs> this, you know, some of this dirt and straw would be falling down. I don't know if Jesus stopped teaching or if he kept teaching through the, through, through the whole thing. Uh, we don't know whose house this was. I mean, can you imagine tearing up some stranger's house? Uh, did they, they fix the roof afterwards? Hopefully they did. We don't know all those details. All we know is they got the hole big enough to lower this guy down right in front of Jesus. So now we got a paralyzed guy in front of Jesus in this crowded house. I guess the four guys are still up on the roof. Now the next part is fascinating. The text says, seeing their faith. Who? Who's, who saw? Jesus. Jesus saw their faith. Now how do you see faith? <laughs> Good question, right? Now we say, well, Jesus can see faith because he's Jesus. But how do you and I see faith? Well, he saw faith in the fact that these folks did, went above and beyond to get the, this, maybe it's a friend, we don't even know, get this guy in front of Jesus where he possibly could be healed. Not for sure, but possibly could be healed. So again, remember, we've got to remember, we know nothing about the paralyzed man's faith. All we know is about the four men's faith. And so they were confident Jesus could, they hoping that he would heal this man. So the text goes on, seeing their faith, Jesus said not to the four men, but to the paralyzed man, my child, your sins are forgiven. Now there's two issues here. One, we don't know anything about his faith. So is Jesus Forgiven this guy's sin because of these four guys' faith? I don't know how to rationalize that theologically. Um, secondly, well, we'll read, the text will tell us the problem with the forgiveness sin part. The other question was, why was the guy there? Was he, was he there to get forgiven? You go to the temple to get forgiven, right? Take your sacrifice to the temple. That's where you get forgiveness. The man wasn't there for forgiveness. He was there for what? be healed, be able to walk. Now, some of the religious leaders are there in the crowd, as always. So some of these religious teachers of religious law who were, who were sitting there, but there was evidently room to sit, thought to themselves, what is this guy saying? Did we really hear what we thought we heard? This is blasphemy. And we don't understand how serious blasphemy is. Only God can forgive sin. So you're saying, you're God? Because only God can forgive sin. 
Now, blasphemy, you know the punishment for blasphemy in G- according to the Old Testament, Jesus' day? It was a light uh, execution. They could ex- stone you to death for blasphemy, claiming to be God. So this is not some minor issue. It's not even a, even a major issue. It's, it's a huge issue that Jesus is saying, oh, I can forgive your sin. Now, Jesus is reading the room, so to speak. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking. Now, if I'm Peter, I'm thinking, okay, he preaches like nobody we ever heard. He can cast out demons. He can heal leprosy. And now he's reading minds? (laughs) Wow. So, he's reading their minds. He's saying, why do you question this in your hearts or in your minds? Now, here's a question I want you all to try and answer. The first service, I actually let them literally answer. Is it easier to say to this paralyzed man, he's addressing these religious leaders, your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? Which is easier to say? What do you think? Now, on one, one hand, it, it seems easier to say your sins are forgiven because we can't see forgiveness, can we? So I can claim I've done it, and you don't know the difference. But I just told you. (laughs) What is the penalty for blasphemy? Death. So you're setting yourself up for a death penalty if you say your sins are forgiven. Now we need to understand something about their theology and their culture. They connected sickness with sin. The sicker you are, the more sinful you are. That's what they believed. So if you had leprosy, you're a, you or your parents were terrible sinners. Or if you're paralyzed, you or your parents were terrible sinners. So I'm going to summarize it this way. Something is wrong with you because you did something wrong. You're sick, you're paralyzed, you're leper, because you did something wrong. Now, that's bad theology. We don't think it's true. And Jesus didn't teach that. Jesus said, okay, sickness is a result of sin of sin in the world, not specific sin. There's not a one-to-one correlation. And eventually, our body, sin produces death. Our bodies die. But the reigns on the just and the unjust. So some people are sick that didn't do anything wrong. Some people do things wrong that aren't sick, etc. So then Jesus says this. Okay. So how can I prove to you that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now, this is the first time we see the term Son of Man. So Jesus was fully God and He was also fully man. Some people argue, well, He wasn't really a man or wasn't really God. No, 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 no. He was 100% God and 100% man. So as a man, man God, if you will, how can I prove to you that I have the authority to do this? Well, if he heals him, right? So what happens? Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And what happens? He jumps up, grabs his mat, walked out through the stunned onlookers, I can imagine. If I was there, I'd be stunned. They were all amazed, and they were praising God. This is a spiritual uh, thing. Exclaiming, we, we've never seen anything like this before. 
I'm sure they hadn't. So the crowd saw. Remember the word crowd's important. And they saw that God was a personal God that, real, that knows individuals and addresses individuals and can forgive individuals. And so consequently, you and I, individuals, can have peace with God. And one thing we struggle with, well, yeah, I think God can forgive me, but I've done some things I don't think I can forgive myself. And I, when I hear that, I always think, okay, you, you're making yourself bigger or greater than God. If God can forgive you, you can't forgive yourself. So you need to hopefully work through that or on that if that's an issue for you. But this sets up an ongoing conflict, obviously, with Jesus and the religious leaders. It's amazing he didn't get killed sooner. Because again, proclaim yourself God was, the penalty was death. So, that was really disturbing. Jesus claimed he could forgive sin. And one other thing that was really disturbing <laughs> to you if you were a Jew uh, listening and following Jesus. He was uncomfortably to us, or to them, comfortable with unrepentant sinners. You know, we kind of set up this us and them thing. You know, there's the, the Christians and then there's the sinful people. And, you know, we'll spend a little bit of time, but we'll stay in our holy huddle and you stay over there. Well, Jesus didn't act that way. He just hung around, spent time with everybody. The unrepentant sinner, the repentant sinner, or the believer. We're all repentant. Repentant sinners. So back, third scenario. So he was in Capernaum, so then he leaves. Leaves town again. Where does he go this time? To the lake shore again. That means the Sea of Galilee. And taught the crowds that were coming to him. So he's going around the sea. And we'll put the map up again. Uh, the Capernaum's up there kind of the northwest. And uh, probably traveled over to the northeast side. Crossed over to the other side. Because that's where... Peter was from, and uh, the first four disciples he, that, that followed him. <clears throat> so he's, he's going on, the crowd's following him, he's, he's teaching. The text goes on. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus. Now, why, is it, why the detail? Well, because there was lots of Levi's, like there's lots of Allens. But this Allen's Allen Youngbar. This guy is Levi uh, Alphaeus. Um, the other thing that's significant, this is real people in a real place in a real time. Again, this is an historical or eyewitness account of Peter. These are literally things that happen. These aren't made up stories. This is real. What is this Levi guy doing? He's sitting at his tax collector's booth, meaning he's a tax collector. And We've talked about this before. Tax collectors were the most despised people in their communities. I don't know who it is in ours. I kind of think of maybe a child molester. I, I don't know who we would consider the most despised people in our society. But they were. They collected money from the people for the Romans. The Romans had a certain amount you could charge that they would collect. The tax collectors would charge what they wanted, which means they were stealing or robbing from the people. They were traitors. They were Jews working for the Romans, so they were considered traitors. Most of them were ostracized by their families. And so they basically uh, gave up Judaism. They, they couldn't worship in the temple, uh, the synagogue. They were given up 
the right to religion and they're giving up the right to be part of their community and their families for the right, uh, for the, for the object of getting rich, basically. So they're the most despised person in town. All right, keep that in mind. So what happens next is really disturbing. This Levi, we know as Matthew, who writes, you know, in our, in our Bible, the first account of Jesus is written by Levi, this, this, this same man. So he goes up to Levi, the most despised guy in town, and he says, follow me and be my disciple. Just like he said to uh, uh, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Same invitation. Now Peter, now this is later, but back then, Peter's uh, distraught. I mean, what is happening here? It, why is Jesus even inviting this guy? This, this is going to ruin our reputation with the religious leaders, with the people in town. It's going to ruin our reputation. It's going to ruin your reputation, Jesus. And even worse yet, what if he accepts? But he probably won't. Who's going to give up all that money? So this was, turned out to be, and we use the term, a lose-lose situation. Not once did Jesus is offered the invitation. No matter what happens, it's a, a losing situation as far as Peter's concerned. This guy's not like us, Jesus. You know, we're trying to serve God. We're trying to follow the rules. He, you know, he's, he's an outcast. He, he, he's a traitor. He's despised by the people. So Peter might have been thinking, or maybe you, you and I would be thinking, well, this is just a test. This guy's not going to accept because he's not going to sacrifice the money. So the, <laughs> the text goes on. Again, so disturbing. Levi, Levi got up and followed him. He joined the group. And I can imagine Peter being disgusted. How can I even hang out with this guy? You invited us into, our, you know, our, our uh, small group. You know, we had this great small group going. He just invited this guy in. Well, Jesus was trying to get something across that you and I talked about last week. In this new kingdom, everybody's invited to participate. doesn't matter who you are, what you've done. Everybody is invited to participate. The kingdom of God is near. It's not far. You're not far from the kingdom, no matter what you've done. And I can imagine Peter 30 years later saying, well, I'm certainly not without excuse. When he got arrested, I deserved it. No, I did follow along for a while, but eventually I had denied him three times. And once he was executed, we thought it was all over. So I shouldn't be so hard on on Levi. So we see Jesus colliding with the culture and religion of his day. And Peter and Andrew, James and John had a decision to make at this point, right? And it's hard for us to imagine how difficult this would have been. Okay, Jesus, we left everything to follow you. And they're basically back at their home, so they could have easily went back to fishing. But there must have been something about Jesus that said, okay, we don't understand this. This is going to be really difficult for us to do to accept this guy into our inner circle. But Jesus, we're not going to, we're, we're hanging with you too. Now, if you think that was difficult enough, what happens next is even more difficult, but we've got we to gotta save that for next week. So hopefully you can join us. And I want to give you what text we're going to try and cover next week. So this is, you pick it up, the story in Mark 2, 15, 
and then read through Mark 3. It'll, it'll take you five minutes to read that text. And I think next week's message will be easier to connect with if you've already got the story, uh, if you've already read the stories. So there's lots of think-abouts, but I'll just give you one. These certain religious practices, do you feel certain religious practices hinder your relationship with God? Especially if you're not really, you know, a, a churchgoer, you know, committed Christian. Are there just some things about Christianity that seem to hinder you having a relationship with God? And then if so, are those things it should be? Hopefully you'll think about that. Let me pray with you and let you go. Father God, we thank you so much for these, this, this narrative of Peter and Jesus and, and what happened and, and, and these these, this world, complete new world view, complete new way of thinking uh, that <clears throat> um, doesn't matter what you've done, you can be invited in to follow Jesus, invited into his family, uh, that you don't have to sacrifice animals, forgiveness can come through Jesus, <clears throat> that um, illness, sickness isn't a result of anything particularly you and I have done. And that there are no untouchables. And so God, would pray for folks out there that may feel they're in one of these categories. They'll, they'll have a, a new, a fresh perspective, a feeling of peace and freedom today, realizing that that should not be an obstacle to following Jesus, to joining his family. And Father God, we thank you so much that we have that freedom. Uh, I don't know about the rest of the folks, but I feel a little convicted that sometimes I put people in that kind of untouchable category, unassociated category. Forgive me for that. God, that you sent your son Jesus to die for everyone. Everybody's invited. And let us go and share that good news. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.